The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Today we're going to take time to look at four ways that sin works itself out in this passage. And the first one is just sin and Satan. Right from the get-go, the Bible tells us the source of sin. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? It's interesting in this chapter, we don't hear the word Satan, we don't hear the word devil, we don't hear the word Lucifer, we don't hear, the word, we don't hear any descriptive title except the serpent. That's the phrase that we hear in Genesis. But throughout the rest of scripture, we know that this is a reference to Satan. And what God wants us to be aware of is just as God is real, just as Adam was real and Eve was real, Jacob, Isaac, all these people in the Bible are real. Satan is real. And we need to take him seriously. John 8, verse 44 says, The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he speaks lies, it's his native language, for he is a liar, and he's the father of lies. We also learn from Isaiah 14, 13 to 14. It says about Satan, You said in your heart, I will send to heaven. Above the stars of a God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And this is the key phrase, I will make myself like the most high. We don't know much about Satan, but we know that he was full of pride. We gather from Scripture that he was one of the most beautiful angels created, and he had a lot of authority. But that got to his head, and at some point he said, I will make myself like God. I will be maybe more than God. And then we read in Revelations 12, verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Satan has been defeated by God. He's got a, a time frame on earth, just like we do before Christ comes again and sets things new. But he's been defeated. And he knows that. And that's important to understand why does Satan tempt us? Because Satan knows that he can't do anything against God. There is no contest there. There's no battle as far as, oh, is God going to lose? Could Satan win? No, that's done. But what can Satan do? Well, he can cause pain to our father by attacking his children. And that's why Satan attacks you and I. We're made in the image of God. We have a beautiful present with Christ and a wonderful future that we can hardly imagine in eternity. And Satan hates that. He hates that our lives can be a reflection of Christ because of the grace of what Jesus did and the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And he tempts us because he wants to kill and destroy because he knows that's his end game. He knows that God has prepared hell for him and his angels. Hell was not prepared for mankind. 
Hell was prepared for Satan and his angels. And the only people who will go there are those who choose not to have life in Christ. And Satan wants Christ to hurt. So he attacks his children. I also want to say I have sin and Satan. I also want to talk briefly about systems. A few years back, we read a book as a church called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without hurting the poor or yourself. And one of the things I appreciated about this book, and, and I'd recommend uh, getting it as we move forward in Justice and Mercy, this is a good book to have in your library to just help us think properly about helping others. But he mentions that so often we think of helping people mainly economically. It's a money issue. And he says, no, because of the fall, there's a lot bigger issues that really need to be the focus of our concern. And so he mentions a number of them, and the first one is that there's a poverty of spiritual intimacy. The first problem for every human being is that there's a separation between us and God because of sin. The other realities is that there's a poverty of being. We don't understand who we are. We all search for our own identity, and we try to do that outside of Christ. And I'm only supposed to know who I am in Christ. So we have a poverty of being, and people need to learn about who Jesus is. There's a poverty of community. We see this somewhat uh, in the story of Eve when God tells Eve her, her consequences, not her curses. It's clear that God isn't cursing Eve. He says, these are the consequences of your choice. You're going to have pain in childbearing, and you're going to desire your husband, but he's going to rule over you. Now, just so you understand, when you hear that phrase, you will desire your, your husband and he will rule over you, that's not prescriptive, that's descriptive. The Bible says this is what happens when sin is in relationships. So that's what it's showing. It's showing there's always going to be problem in community. And then there's also a poverty of stewardship. Now, God did say, cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. This earth is paying the penalty for our sin. And there's a poverty of stewardship. And we need to learn how to care for this earth well. Not because we're worried that it's going to die someday, but no, because God has made this world to reflect his beauty so that everything we see in some way points to the creator of it all. And we know that someday the Lord will recreate, and that's going to be a beautiful thing. So, so here we see all these levels of poverty, but what I really want to highlight here is the book mentions about systemic sin. And there's systems in this world that are broken, and sin is a part of them, and we don't have a good relationship with them. They often can, they could help us know God more, but often they don't because sin is in them. So there's economic systems, there's social systems, there's political systems, there's religious systems. So we just need to be aware that sin isn't just our personal sin, there's sin from the father of lies, and there's sin in the system of the world. And so it's, it's pervasive, and we need to remember that. So let's look at sin and subtlety. You will be like God. That's what Satan says to Eve. You will be like God. And that in itself isn't a bad thing, is it? Isn't it? Like, we all want to be like God. We sing about it all the time. Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art. 
Come in thy sweetness, come in thy fullness, stamp thine own image deep on my heart. All these songs we sing about, Lord, we want to be like you. Come and change us so that we experience the life of Christ within us. I want to be like God. That's a wonderful thing. That's the goal of our salvation. But it can also be a very subtle lie. When, like Satan, I will make myself like God. Oh, I know what a good Christian is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I can become better at those things. Oh, a Christian does this kind of thing. I can do those kind of things. No. Being like God means being in union with him, living in his strength and his power, his enablement. It's not us trying to make ourselves like God. It's us receiving God and allowing him to flow through us. He says, knowing God by what? Being able to discern good and evil. I think what we can say here fairly is that Adam and Eve already knew the difference between good and evil. Good was everything God created. Evil was choosing the one thing God said not to have. So they already knew there's good and there's evil. Good is enjoying what God has made. Evil is doing the opposite of what God wants me to do. So this is more than just an awareness that there's right and wrong. This is talking about wanting to have the prerogative or the power to determine what is right or wrong behavior. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the phrase, and they did what was right in their own eyes. You want a definition of sin? That's a good one. When we don't look to God for what's right or what's wrong, and we say, I can make that decision on my own. You know, when I think about it, I think this is right for me. But I don't inquire about God. I don't ask his opinion. I just live based on, hey, well, I heard this teacher say that. I just let my ears be tickled by the things I want to hear. And I do whatever is right in my own eyes, and I feel good about that. And God says, no, you're just stuck in sin. Don't be stuck in sin. And so when Eve grabs for that fruit, the Bible says she's deceived. She thinks she's doing something that will actually make her like God. And, and it's not going to do that. But she's deceived because when she saw the tree, she saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to her eyes, that it was desired to make one wise. And so she took the fruit and she ate it because she thought it was good to do. And because she did something that was contrary to what God wanted for her, she entered into darkness and spiritual death. Proverbs tells us, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, sin is very subtle. There's a song by Casting Crowns called Slow Fade. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard that. That's a really good song if you want to just understand how easy it is for us to get off track with God and to be walking to our own rhythm. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. So let me ask you this. How do we determine what is right? And let me suggest that if you and I 
individually and together are not spending time with God and his word to discern how to live in this world in a way that exudes justice and mercy, truth and love, that we are very much in danger of living in a way that is right in our own eyes and thinking that it honors God because it seems like the right thing to do. The only way we can be sure that we're on the right road is that we ask Christ and we live in the strength of his Holy Spirit and we have each other to be iron sharpens iron. If we don't have that, you're taking a real big risk. I'm taking a real big risk to think that I can't be deceived because I'm just doing what I think is right. I've heard a teacher say that before. I should do this. A good guy. He even mentioned Bible verses. Heaven forbid that we are tricked by sin's subtlety. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he's worried about the false teachers. He's worried that they're leading people astray by the things that they say that might tickle ears, but it's making things complicated, it's taking away from the simplicity of Christ, and he writes these words in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Christ wants you and I to be able to quickly discern what is right or wrong because we've been abiding with him and his truth is so ingrained in our hearts individually and collectively that we know what is the right thing to do and we know how to live with him. Let's move on to, oh, here, I was just going to say this. In this passage, one of the things that we could do, if you're wondering about temptation and how do I know if I'm going in the right way or the wrong way, this is one thing that would really help. Focus on what God has given you and not what he's forbidden. Focus on, focus on what God has given you, not what he's uh, forbidden. Remember what he's provided, not what he's prohibited. And when you think, wow, I'm starting to think about the wrong thing <laughs> all the time, and I'm getting caught up on this, you're getting stuck in temptation. And remember that temptation itself isn't the sin. It's what we do with the temptation. Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. Again, there's a saying that you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from making a nest in your hair. That's what we need to do with temptation. You can't stop it from coming. It's going to come. The devil will tempt you. But you can say, Satan, get away from me in the name of Jesus Christ. And you can focus on the things of Christ. So focus on what he's given, not what he's forbidden. So let's look at sin and self-centeredness. So she also gave, Eve also gave some of the, the fruit to her husband who was with her, and he ate so Adam wasn't part of the conversation, but from what we gather, he was probably nearby and saw what was happening. We don't know because the Bible doesn't say those things. We can kind of make our own maybe intelligent guess. What I do know is this. Satan with God was defiant. He said, I will make myself like God. Eve, we're told, was deceived. That's what we read in, in 1 Timothy 2. Eve was deceived. But Adam was deliberate. He chose to sin. 
He understood what was taking place, and he said, I choose to eat this fruit. I want to know the difference between good and evil. I want to be the person who decides what that is for me. And that's really the core of self-centeredness. I use self-centeredness rather than selfishness because right away, well, selfish, I'm not selfish, but self-centeredness means we start thinking about ourselves kind of at the core of everything. Somehow it always comes back to us. And we might not think of that as sinful, but it, it always comes back to us. And even as Christians, when we think about the sins we commit, we think about the sin's impact on us, which isn't a bad thing, right? I, I shouldn't want to be condemned. I shouldn't want to spend eternity in hell. But sin, first and foremost, is against God. That's what we read in the song. That's what we read from the life of David. Sin is first and foremost against God. So why shouldn't you want to sin? Of course, there's all these personal reasons, but first and foremost is because it offends and it hurts the God who created me and loves me. I'm even selfish in the way I think about sin. To the core. And then look what, look what Adam does when Jesus lovingly, or God lovingly, rebukes the him. He says, well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. More or less saying, well, you did it. You gave me this helper. Uh, so, Lord, it's kind of your fault that I fell into sin. He doesn't say those words, but it can almost be implied there. And, and the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She, too, passed on blame. She didn't blame God. She just blamed the serpent. But I think we need to be aware that sin makes us very self-centered. And when we have spirits that desire to blame others, that's a good sign that sin's at work in our life. Sin, shame, and salvation. Let me just read these words again from Genesis 3, verses 7 to 10. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the, garden, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Wow, what a far way we have fallen in 10 verses. Do you remember last week, Genesis 2, 25? And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. 10 verses later, they're covering up themselves. They're hiding from God. Relational isolation. This idea that we are alone we, we, we bring it on ourselves because of sin. And all of a sudden we're hiding from God and we're hiding from each other. And God says, I didn't create you for that. I created you to abide. I created you to abide with me so that you can also abide with each other. And by being with each other, you will actually know me more fully. Because I've created both of you in my image. You need each other to understand me better. So God says, I want you to abide. And what we often do is hide. Every time we sin, that's what we're doing. We're hiding. 
Now, I'm sure these words would never come out of our mouths when we choose to sin. But you have to think about your actions sometimes speak louder than your words. So this is true of me. And this is what really bothers me about my relationship with God and how self-centered and foolish I am when I think about how I treat God in my life. Most days, there will be something that makes me think, I want this. I think it's good for me. I don't even care what God, I, I don't say these things, but I choose something that I know is not good for me to have because I feel it might be good for me in the moment. And in that moment, it's as though I was saying the words, God, please don't look. God, please go away. I've started trying to say those words when I'm tempted to sin because when that comes out of my mouth, I'm horrified at how easily deceived I am. That every time I sin, it's like saying, Lord, please move away from me. Lord, please don't look. And then I do thank the Lord that he doesn't answer all the prayers I have because sometimes my actions are horrific. I'm sure that's true for you too. So let's not hide. Let's learn to abide. And let's encourage each other in that. That's why we're trying to create environments like come to the table or anything that you see us do as a church together so that together we can abide with Christ and learn more and more what life in Christ is all about. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him, will he will never be put to shame. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him, in Christ, will never be put to shame. Again, there will be diff different way people use words, but for me, shame has no place in the life of a Christian. Shame just is this thing that makes you think, oh, who am I to be a part of God? And, and it has no part in a life of a Christian. We struggle with it, but we need to give that to God and say, Lord, help me to just give this shame over to you. But you know what does have a huge part in the life of a Christian? The awareness of guilt. Guilt, in my opinion, is God's gift to you when you become aware of it. Because when you become aware of guilt, you understand why you need a savior, why you and I need Jesus Christ. And we grow in our gratitude when we understand that Christ has already died for every sin I've committed. So when you get that tinge of guilt, you have a choice to make. Does it make you shameful and actually make you want to distance yourself from God? Maybe even in a holy thought. Well, I got to get myself right before I, you know, confess this to God. I need a little bit of distance from my habitual sin before I feel like I can pray about it because I feel like a broken record. But when the Holy Spirit in his grace makes you aware that you're guilty, you can say, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that your blood has covered all my sin and you can become a much more grateful and joyful person. The Lord said about the woman who was washing her feet, and people said, Lord, if you knew who she was, you wouldn't let her do that. And he said, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. I'm fairly certain that when you and I struggle with loving God, it's partly because we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. So the next time that God makes you aware that you're guilty, say, Lord, thank you for making me aware of that. Thank you that your grace covers that. And Lord, help me not to sin against you again.
So now we look at Genesis 3, 14 to 15. And we read these words. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And now this is the key verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Most would say this is the first time that the gospel is introduced in the Bible. If we look at Hebrews, we know that this took place when Christ was on the cross and Satan thought he had won. He bit Christ's heel. But he didn't know that his head was just about to be crushed because God rose again. And he ascended into heaven. And he said, in the way that I go up into heaven, I will come back down. We have a great and glorious and victorious future with the God who created everything. And he said, I have given you a deposit. I have given you my Holy Spirit so that you might know these things are true. Praise God that right from the get-go, from the very moment we heard about sin, he said, I already have a plan. I already have a plan because I love you. Not because you deserve saving, but because I love you. And he wants to have life with us. You know, there's another picture that's given. It said that Adam and Eve, they sewed leaves and they made their own loincloths. But then it said, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of the skins and clothed them. You know, the first people who should have died are Adam and Eve. And the first death that we see is that of an animal. And it's a foreshadowing, I believe, of the sacrifice that was going to be made on our behalf. The Bible says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And even in this illustration of them walking away with these clothes of animals, it's a little picture of what Jesus Christ would do for us to cover our sins because he would die on our behalf. Quickly, in the last week or two, I've had two people ask me, what, what if I sin in heaven? It's ha- like, so it happened here, right? Like, like Adam and Eve sinned. We're talked about this wonderful eternity. How will it be that I will never sin? I can't envision that because I've never had a day where I haven't done that. And the only answer that comes to mind for me, the main difference between Adam and Eve and you and I is that we have the wonderful privilege of having the Holy Spirit reside in us. And the reason I know that you and I will never sin for eternity is because the Holy Spirit won't let us. Because finally when I get into heaven, sin will have no hold on me and the Holy Spirit will flow through me like never before and there will be billions of people in eternity, I believe, and every person will reflect the image and person of God perfectly but not completely. That's why we need each other. Our God is so majestic, so big, and we will never sin because he's given us the deposit of the Holy Spirit, and that deposit is going to be paid in full when we're in eternity. You don't have to worry about will you sin in heaven. You won't. Praise God for that. As we close, I just want to share these words from Romans 16, 9 to 20. I want you to be as wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. A lot of commentators talk about this for the second coming, and it's true, there's another coming of Christ, but the context of here is more about the day-to-day living. To say that when you hear things that aren't true, you put on the full armor of God, and that battle can be won. God has given you and I the ability to be victorious in him. Not in our own strength for him, but in him. So if you want to be victorious, grow in your enjoyment of God in your life. Ask God, Holy Spirit, please have your way in me. Flow freely through me today. Make yourself known through me today. And Satan will be crushed underneath our feet as we live in the strength of God. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here this morning. Thank you for your powerful truth that we can learn from, and thank you for the powerful way that you've saved us. And I pray that because of your Holy Spirit and through your Holy Spirit that you would continue to change us, that we might become more and more like you, more and more Christ-like in how we love, in how we live, in how we treat one another. I pray that you would help us to do that, but not by our own strength, not by us grasping for it ourselves. Help us to depend on you and abide in you, and in that way grow in you. May you be pleased by how you shape us to honor you more. Bless each one as we go from here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.